Chapters One through Three of The Masquerader. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tom Weiss. The Masquerader by Catherine Cecil Thurston. Chapter One. Two incidents widely differed in character yet bound together by results marked the night of january the twenty-third on that night the blackest fog within a four years memory fell upon certain portions of london and also on that night came the first announcement of the border risings against the persian government in the province of khorasan the announcement that speculated upon even smiled at at the time assumed such significance in the light of after events at eight o'clock the news spread through the house of commons but at nine men in the inner lobbies were gossiping not so much upon how far russia while ostensibly upholding the shaw had pulled the strings by which the insurgents danced as upon the manner in which the st george's gazette the tory evening newspaper had seized upon the incident and shaken it in the faces of the government more than once before Lakely, the owner and editor of the St. George's, had stepped outside the decorous circle of tradition and taken a plunge into modern journalism, but to-night he essayed deeper waters than before, and under an almost sensational heading declared that, in this apparently innocent border rising, we had less an outcome of mere racial antagonism than a first faint index of a long-cherished Russian scheme growing to a gradual maturity under the drift policy of the present british government the effect produced by this pronouncement if strong was varied members of the opposition saw or thought they saw a reflection of it in the smiling unconcern on the mysterial benches and the government had an uneasy sense that behind a newly kindled interest on the other side of the house lay some mysterious scenting of battle from afar off but though these impressions ran like electricity through the atmosphere, nothing tangible marked their passage, and the ordinary business of the house proceeded until half-past eleven, when an adjournment was moved. The first man to hurry from his place was John Chilcote, member for East Wark. He passed out of the house quickly, with a half-furtive quickness that marks a self-absorbed man and as he passed the policeman standing stolidly under the arched doorway of the big courtyard, he swerved a little, as if startled out of his thoughts. He realized his swerve almost before it was accomplished, and pulled himself together with nervous irritability. "'Foggy night, constables,' he said with elaborate carelessness. "'Foggy night, sir, and thickening up west,' responded the man. "'Ah, indeed.' Chilcote's answer was absent." The constable's cheery voice jarred on him, and for the second time he was conscious of senseless irritation. Without a further glance at the man, he slipped out into the courtyard and turned towards the main gate. At the gateway two cab lamps showed through the mist of shifting fog like the eyes of a great cat, and the familiar, "'Handsome, sir,' came to him indistinctly. He paused by force of custom, and stepping forward had almost touched the open door when a new impulse caused him to draw back. No, he said hurriedly, no, I'll walk. The cabman muttered, lashed his horse, and with a clatter of hoofs and harness wheeled away, while Chilcote, still with uncertain hastiness, crossed the road in the direction of Whitehall. About the abbey the fog had partially lifted, and in the railed garden that faces the Houses of Parliament the statues were visible in a spectral way but Chilcote's glance was unstable and indifferent. He skirted the railings heedlessly, and, crossing the road with the speed of long familiarity, gained Whitehall on the left-hand side. There the fog had dropped, and looking upwards towards Trafalgar Square, it seemed that the chain of lamps extended little farther than the horse-guards, and that beyond lay nothing. Unconscious of this capricious alternation between darkness and light, Chilcote continued his course. To a close observer the manner of his going had both interest and suggestion, for though he walked on, apparently self-engrossed, yet at every dozen steps he started at some sound or some touch 
like a man whose nervous system is painfully overstrung. Maintaining his haste, he went deliberately forward, oblivious of the fact that at each step the curtain of darkness about him became closer, damper, more tangible, that at each second the passers-by jostled each other with greater frequency. Then abruptly, with a sudden realization of what had happened, he stood quite still. Without anticipation or preparation he had walked full into the thickness of the fog, a thickness so dense that, as by an enchanter's wand, the figures of a moment before had melted, the street lamps were sucked up into the night. His first feeling was a sense of panic at the sudden isolation, his second a thrill of nervous apprehension at the oblivion that had allowed him to be so entrapped. The second feeling outweighed the first. He moved forward, then paused again, uncertain of himself. Finally, with the consciousness that inaction was unbearable, he moved on once more, his eyes wide open, one hand thrust out as a protection and guide. The fog had closed in behind him as heavily as in front, shutting off all possibility of retreat. All about him in the darkness was a confusion of voices, cheerful, dubious, alarmed or angry. Now and then a sleeve brushed his, or a hand touched him tentatively. It was a strange moment, a moment of possibilities to which the crunching wheels, the oaths and laughter from the blocked traffic of the roadway made a continuous accompaniment. Keeping well to the left, Chilcote still beat on. There was a persistence in his movements that almost amounted to fear, a fear born of the solitude filled with innumerable sounds. For a space he groped about him without result. Then his fingers touched the cold surface of a shuttered shop-front, and a thrill of reassurance passed through him. With renewed haste and clinging to his landmark as a blind man might, he started forward with fresh impetus. For a dozen paces he moved rapidly and unevenly. Then the natural result occurred. He collided with a man coming in the opposite direction. The shock was abrupt. Both men swore simultaneously, then both laughed. The whole thing was casual, but Chilcote was in that state of mind when even the commonplace becomes abnormal. The other man's exclamation, the other man's laugh, struck on his nerves. Coming out of the darkness they sounded like a repetition of his own. Nine out of every ten men in London, given the same social position and the same education, might reasonably be expected to express annoyance or amusement in the same manner, possibly in the same tone of voice, and Chilcote remembered this almost at the moment of his nervous jar. "'Beastly fog,' he said aloud. "'I'm trying to find Grosvenor Square, but the chances seem rather small.' The other laughed again, and again the laugh upset Chilcote. He wondered uncomfortably if he was becoming a prey to illusions but the stranger spoke before the question had solved itself. "'I'm afraid they are small,' he said. "'It would be almost hard to find one's way to the devil on a night like this.' Chilcote made a murmur of amusement and drew back against the shop. "'Yes, we can see now where the blind man scores in the matter of salvation. This is almost a repetition of the fog of six years ago. Were you out in that? It was a habit of his to jump from one sentence to another.' a habit that had grown of late. No, the stranger had also groped his way to the shop-front. No, I was out of England six years ago. You were lucky. Chilcote turned up the collar of his coat. It was an atrocious fog, as black as this, but more universal. I remember it well. It was the night Lexington made his great sugar speech. Some of us were found on Lambeth Bridge at three in the morning, having left the house at twelve. Chilcote seldom indulged in reminiscences, but this conversation with an unseen companion was more like a soliloquy than a dialogue. He was almost surprised into an exclamation when the other caught up his words. "'Ah, the sugar speech,' he said. "'Odd that I should have been looking it up only yesterday. What a magnificent dressing-up of a dry subject it was! What a career Lexington promised in those days!' Chilcote changed his position. "'You are interested in the muddle down at Westminster?' he asked sarcastically. "'I?' It was the turn of the stranger to draw back a step. "'Oh, I read my newspaper with the other five million, that is all. I am an outsider. 
His voice sounded curt. The warmth that admiration had brought into it a moment before had frozen abruptly. "'An outsider,' Chilcote repeated. "'What an enviable word. Possibly to those who are well inside the ring, but let us go back to Lexington. What a pinnacle the man reached, and what a drop he had. It has always seemed to me an extraordinary instance of the human leaven running through us all. What was the real cause of his collapse?' he asked suddenly. "'Was it drugs or drink? I have often wished to get at the truth.' Again Chilcote changed his attitude. "'Is truth ever worth getting at?' he asked irrelevantly. "'In the case of a public man, yes. He exchanges his privacy for the interest of the masses. If he gives the masses the details of his success, why not the details of his failure? But was it drink that sucked him under?' "'No,' Chilcote's response came after a pause. "'Drugs?' Again Chilcote hesitated, and at the moment of his indecision a woman brushed past him, laughing boisterously. The sound jarred him. "'Was it drugs?' the stranger went on easily. "'I have always had a theory that it was.' "'Yes, it was morphia.' The answer came before Chilcote had realized it. The woman's laugh at the stranger's quiet persistence had contrived to draw it from him. Instantly he had spoken, he looked about him quickly, like one who has for a moment forgotten a necessary vigilance. There was silence while the stranger thought over the information just given him. Then he spoke again with a new touch of vehemence. So I imagined, he said, though on my soul I never really credited it, to have gained so much and to have thrown it away for a common vice. He made an exclamation of disgust. Chilcote gave him an unsteady laugh. "'You judge hardly,' he said. The other repeated his sound of contempt. "'Justly so. No man has the right to squander what another would give his soul for. It lessens the general respect for power. You are a believer in power?' The tone was sarcastic, but the sarcasm sounded thin. "'Yes, all power is the outcome of individuality, either past or present. I find no sentiment for the man who plays with it. The quiet contempt of the tone stung Chilcote. "'Do you imagine that Lexington made no fight?' he asked impulsively. "'Can't you picture the man's struggle while the vice that had been slave gradually became master?' He stopped to take breath, and in the cold pause that followed it seemed to him that the other made a murmur of incredulity. "'Perhaps you think of morphia as a pleasure,' he added. "'Think of it instead as a tyrant that tortures the mind of held to and the body of cast off. Urged by the darkness and the silence of his companion, the rein of his speech had loosened. In that moment he was not Chilcote the member for East Wharf, whose moods and silences were proverbial, but Chilcote the man whose mind craved the relief of speech. You talk as the world talks, out of ignorance and self-righteousness, he went on. Before you condemn Lexington you should put yourself in his place. As you do, the other laughed. Unsuspecting and inoffensive as the laugh was, it startled Chilcote. With a sudden alarm he pulled himself up. I? He tried to echo the laugh, but the attempt fell flat. Oh, I merely speak from... from De Quincey. But I believe this fog is shifting. I really believe it is shifting. Can you oblige me with a light? I had almost forgotten that a man may still smoke, though he has been deprived of sight. He spoke fast and disjointedly. He was overwhelmed by the idea that he had let himself go, and possessed by the wish to obliterate the consequences. As he talked he fumbled for his cigarette case. His head was bent as he searched for it nervously. Without looking up he was conscious that the cloud of fog that held him prisoner was lifting, rolling away, closing back again preparatory to final appearance. Having found the case he put a cigarette between his lips and raised his hand at the moment that the stranger drew a match across his box. For a second each stared blankly at the other's face suddenly made visible by the lifting of the fog. The match in the stranger's hand burned down till it scorched his fingers, and feeling the pain he laughed and let it drop. Of all odd things, he said. Then he broke off. The circumstance was too novel for ordinary remark. By any of those rare occurrences, those chances that seem too wild for real life and yet belong to no other sphere, the two faces so strangely hidden and strangely revealed were identical. 
feature for feature. It seemed to each man that he looked not at the face of another, but at his own face reflected in a flawless looking-glass. Of the two the stranger was the first to regain self-possession. Seeing Chilcote's bewilderment, he came to his rescue with brusque tactfulness. "'The position is decidedly odd,' he said. "'But, after all, why should we be so surprised? Nature can't be eternally original. She must dry up sometimes, and when she gets a good model, why shouldn't she use it twice?' He drew back, surveying Chilcote whimsically. "'But, pardon me, you are still waiting for that light.' Chilcote still held the cigarette between his lips. The paper had become dry, and he moistened it as he leaned towards his companion. "'Don't mind me,' he said. "'I'm rather, rather unstrung tonight, and this thing gave me a jar. To be candid my imagined took head in the fog, and I got to fancy I was talking to myself, and pulled up to find that fancy in some way real. Yes, something like that.' Both were silent for a moment. Chilcote pulled hard at his cigarette, then, remembering his obligations, he turned quickly to the other one. "'Won't you smoke?' he asked. The stranger accepted a cigarette from the case held out to him, and as he did so the extraordinary likeness to himself struck Chilcote with added force. Involuntarily he put out his hand and touched the other's arms. "'It's my nerves,' he said in explanation. "'They make me want to feel that you are substantial. Nerves play such beastly tricks.' he laughed awkwardly. The other glanced up. His expression on the moment was slightly surprised, slightly contemptuous, but he changed it instantly to conventional interest. "'I am afraid I am not an authority on nerves,' he said. But Chilcote was preoccupied. His thoughts had turned into another channel. "'How old are you?' he asked suddenly. The other did not answer immediately. "'My age,' he said at last slowly. "'Oh, I believe I shall be thirty-six tomorrow, to be quite accurate.' Chilcote lifted his head quickly. "'Why do you use that tone?' he asked. "'I am six months older than you, and I only wish it was six years, six years nearer oblivion.' Again a slight incredulous contempt crossed the other's eyes. "'Oblivion?' he said. "'Where are your ambitions?' "'They don't exist.' "'Don't exist? Yet you voice your country?' I concluded that much in the fog. Chilcote laughed sarcastically. When one has voiced one's country for six years one gets hoarse. It's a natural consequence. The other smiled. Ah, discontent, he said. The modern canker. But we must both be getting under way. Good night. Shall we shake hands to prove that we are genuinely material? Chilcote had been standing unusually still, following the stranger's words, caught by his self-reliance, and impressed by his personality. Now, as he ceased to speak, he moved quickly forward, impelled by a nervous curiosity. "'Why should we just hail each other and pass like the proverbial ships?' he said impulsively. "'If nature was careless enough to let the reproduction meet the original, she must abide the consequences.' The other laughed, but his laugh was short. "'Oh, I don't know. Our roads lie differently. You would get nothing out of me, and I—' He stopped and again laughed shortly. No, he said, I'd be content to pass if I were you. The unsuccessful man is seldom a profitable study. Shall we say good-night? He shook Chilcote's hand for an instant, then, crossing the footpath, he passed into the roadway towards the strand. It was done in a moment, but with his going a sense of loss fell upon Chilcote. He stood for a space, newly conscious of unfamiliar faces and unfamiliar voices in the stream of passers-by. Then, suddenly mastered by an impulse, he wheeled rapidly and darted after the tall, lean figure so ridiculously like his own. Halfway across Trafalgar Square he overtook the stranger. He had paused on one of the small stone islands that break the current of traffic and was waiting for an opportunity to cross the street. In the glare of light from the lamp above his head Chilcote saw for the first time that under a remarkable neatness of appearance his clothes were well-worn, almost shabby. The discovery struck him with something stronger than surprise. The idea of poverty seemed incongruous in connection with the reliance, the reserve, the personality of the man. With a certain embarrassed haste he stepped forward and touched his arm. "'Look here,' he said, as the other turned quietly, "'I have followed you to exchange cards. It can't injure either of us, and I—' 
I have a wish to know my other self. He laughed nervously as he drew out his card-case. The stranger watched him in silence. There was the same faint contempt, but also there was a reluctant interest in his glance as it passed from the fingers fumbling with the case to the pale face with the square jaw, straight mouth, and level eyebrows drawn low over the gray eyes. When at last the card was held out to him, he took it without remark and slipped it into his pocket. Chilcote looked at him eagerly. "'Now the exchange?' he said. For a second the stranger did not respond. Then, almost unexpectedly, he smiled. "'After all, if it amuses you,' he said, and searching in his waistcoat pocket he drew out the required card. "'It will leave you quite unenlightened,' he added. "'The name of a failure never spells anything.' With another smile, partly amused, partly ironical, he stepped from the little island and disappeared into the throng of traffic. Chilcote stood for an instant gazing at the point where he had vanished. Then, turning to the lamp, he lifted the card and read the name it bore. Mr. John Loder, 13 Clifford's Inn. End of chapter 1 Chapter 2 On the morning following the night of the fog, Chilcote woke at nine. He woke at the moment that his man Alsop tiptoed across the room and laid the salver with his early cup of tea on the table beside the bed. For several seconds he lay with his eyes shut. The effort of opening them on a fresh day, the intimate certainty of what he would see on opening them, seemed to weight his lids. The heavy half-closed curtains, the blinds severely drawn, the great room with its splendid furniture, its sobering color, its scent of damp London winter, above all, all sop, silent, respectful, and respectable, were things to dread. A full minute passed while he still feigned sleep. He heard Allsop stir discreetly, then the inevitable information broke the silence. Nine o'clock, sir. He opened his eyes, murmured something, and closed them again. The man moved to the window, quietly pulled back the curtains and half drew the blind. Better night, sir, I hope, he ventured softly. Chilcote had drawn the bedclothes over his face to screen himself from the daylight, murky though it was. Yes, he responded. Those beastly nightmares didn't trouble me for once. He shivered a little as at some recollection. But don't talk, don't remind me of them. I hate a man who has no originality. He spoke sharply. At times he showed an almost childish irritation over trivial things. Allsop took the remark in silence. Crossing the wide room he began to lay out his master's clothes. The action affected Chilcote to fresh annoyance. Confound it, he said, I'm sick of that routine. I can see you laying out my winding sheet the day of my burial. Leave those things. Come back in half an hour. Allsop allowed himself one glance at his master's figure huddled in the great bed. Then, laying aside the coat he was holding, he moved to the door. With his fingers on the handle he paused. "'Will you breakfast in your own room, sir, or downstairs?' Chilcote drew the clothes more tightly round his shoulders. "'Oh, anywhere, nowhere,' he said. "'I don't care.' Alsop slowly withdrew. Left to himself, Chilcote sat up in bed and lifted the salver to his knees. The sudden movement jarred him physically. He drew a handkerchief from under the pillow and wiped his forehead. Then he held his hand to the light and studied it. The hand looked sallow and unsteady. With a nervous gesture he thrust the salver back upon the table and slid out of bed. Moving hastily across the room, he stopped before one of the tall wardrobes and swung the door open. Then, after a furtive glance around the room, he thrust his hand into the recesses of a shelf and fumbled there. The thing he sought was evidently not hard to find, for almost at once he withdrew his hand and moved from the wardrobe to a table beside the fireplace carrying a small glass tube filled with tabloids. On the table were a decanter, a siphon, and a water jug. Mixing some whiskey, he uncorked the tube. Again he glanced apprehensively towards the door, then with a very nervous hand dropped two tabloids into the glass. While they dissolved he stood with his hand on the table and his eyes fixed on the floor, evidently restraining his impatience. Instantly they had disappeared he seized the glass and drained it at a draught, replaced the bottle in the wardrobe, and shivering slightly in the raw air slipped back into bed. 
When Allsop returned he was sitting up, a cigarette between his lips, the teacup standing empty on the salver. The nervous irritability had gone from his manner. He no longer moved jerkily, his eyes looked brighter, his pale skin more healthy. "'Ah, Allsop,' he said, "'there are some moments in life, after all. It isn't all blank wall.' "'I ordered breakfast in the small morning-room, sir,' said Allsop, without a change of expression. Chilcote breakfasted at ten. His appetite, always fickle, was particularly uncertain in the early hours. He helped himself to some fish, but sent away his plate untouched. Then, having drunk two cups of tea, he pushed back his chair, lighted a fresh cigarette, and shook out the morning's newspaper. Twice he shook it out, and twice turned it, but the reluctance to fix his mind upon it made him dally. The effect of the morphia tabloids was still apparent in the greater steadiness of his hand and eye, the regained quiet of his susceptibilities, but the respite was temporary and lethargic. The early days, the days of six years ago when these tabloids meant an even sweep of thought, lucidity of brain, a balance of judgment in thought and effort, were days of the past. As he had said of Lexington and his vice, the slave had become master. As he folded the paper in a last attempt at interest, the door opened and his secretary came a step or two into the room. "'Good morning, sir,' he said. "'Forgive me for being so untimely.' He was a fresh-mannered, bright-eyed boy of twenty-three. His breezy alertness, his deference as to a man who had attained what he aspired to, amused and depressed Chilcote by turns. "'Good morning, Blessington. What is it now?' He sighed through habit, and putting up his hand warded off a ray of sun that had forced itself through the misty atmosphere as if by mistake. The boy smiled. "'It's that business of the Wark timber contract, sir,' he said. "'You promised you'd look into it today. You know you've shelled it for a week already, and Craig Burnage are rather clamoring for an answer.' He moved forward and laid the papers he was carrying on the table beside Chilcote. "'I'm sorry to be such a nuisance,' he added. "'I hope your nerves aren't worrying you today.' Chilcote was toying with the papers. At the word nerves he glanced up suspiciously, but Blessington's ingenuous face satisfied him. "'No,' he said. "'I settled my nerves last night with—with with the bromide. I knew that fog would upset me unless I took precautions. I'm glad of that, sir, though I'd avoid bromides. Bad habit to set up. But this work business—I'd like to get it under way if you have no objection.' Chilcote passed his fingers over the papers. Were you out in that fog, Blessington? No, sir. I supped with some people at the Savoy, and we just missed it. It was very partial, I believe. So I believe. Blessington put his hand to his neat tie and pulled it. He was extremely polite, but he had an inordinate sense of duty. Forgive me, sir, he said, but about that contract I know I'm a frightful bore. Oh, the contract. Chilcote looked at him absently. By the way, did you see anything of my wife yesterday? What did she do last night? Mrs. Chilcote gave me tea yesterday afternoon. She told me she was dining at Lady Sabinet's and looking in at one or two places later. He eyed his papers in Chilcote's listless hand. Chilcote smiled satirically. Eve is very true to society, he said. I couldn't dine at the Sabinet's if it was to make me premier. They have a butler who is an institution a sort of heirloom in the family. He is fat and breathes audibly. Last time I lunched there he haunted me for a whole night. Blessington laughed gaily. Mrs. Chilcote doesn't see ghosts, sir, he said, but if I may suggest. Chilcote tapped his fingers on the table. No, Eve doesn't see ghosts. We rather miss sympathy there. Blessington governed his impatience. He stood still for some seconds, then glanced down at his pointed boot. If you will be lenient to my persistency, sir, I would like to remind you. Chilcote lifted his head with a flash of irritability. Confound it, Blessington! he exclaimed. Am I never to be left in peace? Am I never to sit down to a meal without having work thrust upon me? Work, work, perpetually work? I have heard no other word in the last six years. I declare there are times. He rose suddenly from his seat and turned to the window. There are times when I feel that for sixpence I chuck it all, the whole beastly round. Startled by his vehemence, Blessington wheeled towards him. Not your political career, sir. 
There was a moment in which Chilcote hesitated, a moment in which the desire that had filled his mind for months rose to his lips and hung there. Then the question, the incredulity in Blessington's face, chilled it, and it fell back into silence. "'I—I I didn't say that,' he murmured. "'You young men jump to conclusions, Blessington. Forgive me, sir. I never meant to imply retirement. Why, Rickshaw, Vale, Cresham, and the whole work crowd would be about your ears like flies if such a thing were even breathed, now more than ever since these Persian rumors. By the way, is there anything real in this border business? The St. George's came out rather strong last night. Chilcote had moved back to the table. His face was pale from his outburst, and his fingers toyed restlessly with the open newspaper. I haven't seen the St. George's, he said hastily. Lakely is always ready to shake the red rag where Russia is concerned. Whether we are to enter the arena is another matter. But what about Craig Burnage? I think you mentioned something of a contract. Oh, don't worry about that, sir. Blessington had caught the twitching at the corners of Chilcote's mouth, the nervous sharpness of his voice. I can put Craig Burnage off. If they have an answer by Thursday, it will be time enough. He began to collect his papers, but Chilcote stopped him. Wait he said, veering suddenly. Wait, I'll see to it now. I'll feel more myself when I'm done something. I'll come with you to the study. He walked hastily across the room. Then with his hand on the door he paused. You go first, Blessington, he said. I'll, I'll follow you in ten minutes. I must glance through the newspapers first. Blessington looked uncertain. You won't forget, sir? Forget? Of course not. Still doubtfully, Blessington left the room and closed the door. Once alone, Chilcote walked slowly back to the table, drew up his chair, and sat down with his eyes on the white cloth, the paper lying unheeded beside him. Time passed. A servant came into the room to remove the breakfast. Chilcote moved slightly when necessary, but otherwise retained his attitude. The servant, having finished his task, replenished the fire and left the room. Chilcote still sat on. At last, feeling numbed, he rose and crossed to the fireplace. The clock on the mantelpiece stared him in the face. He looked at it, started slightly, then drew out his watch. Watch and clock corresponded. Each marked twelve o'clock. With a nervous motion he leaned forward and pressed the electric bell long and hard. Instantly a servant answered. "'Is Mr. Blessington in the study?' Chilcote asked. He was there, sir, five minutes back. Chilcote looked relieved. All right. Tell him I have gone out, had to go out. Something important. You understand? I understand, sir. But before the words had been properly spoken, Chilcote had passed the man and walked into the hall. End of chapter two. Chapter three. Leaving his house, Chilcote walked forward quickly and aimlessly. With the sting of the outer air the recollection of last night's adventure came back upon him. Since the hour of his waking it had hung about with vague persistence, but now in the clear light of day it seemed to stand out with a fuller peculiarity. The thing was preposterous, nevertheless it was genuine. He was wearing the overcoat he had worn the night before, and acting on impulse he thrust his hand into the pocket and drew out the stranger's card. Mr. John Loder. He read the name over as he walked along, and it mechanically repeated itself in his brain, falling into measure with his steps. Who was John Loder? What was he? The questions tantalized him till his pace unconsciously increased. The thought that two men so absurdly alike could inhabit the same city and remain unknown to each other faced him as a problem. It tangled with his personal worries and aggravated them there seemed to be almost a danger in such an extraordinary likeness. He began to regret his impetuosity in thrusting his card upon the man. Then again, how had he let himself go on the subject of Lexington? How narrowly he had escaped compromise! He turned hot and cold at the recollection of what he had said and what he might have said. Then, for the first time, he paused in his walk and looked about him. On leaving Grosvenor Square he turned westward, moving rapidly till the marble arch was reached. There, still oblivious to his surroundings, he had crossed the roadway to Edgewar Road, passing along it to the labyrinth of shabby streets that lie behind Paddington. 
now as he glanced about him he saw with some surprise how far he had come. The damp remnants of the fog still hung about the housetops in a filming veil, there were no glimpses of green to break the monotony of tone. All was quiet, dingy, neglected. But to Chilcote the shabbiness was restful, the subdued atmosphere a satisfaction. Among these sad houses, these passer-bys, each filled with his own concerns, he experienced a sense of respite and relief. In the fashionable streets that bounded of his own horizon, if a man paused in his walk to work out an idea, he instantly drew a crowd of inquisitive or contemptuous eyes. Here, if a man halted for half an hour, it was nobody's business but his own. Enjoying this thought, he wandered on for close upon an hour, moving from one street to another with steps that were listless or rapid as inclination prompted. Then, still acting with vagrant aimlessness, he stopped in his wanderings and entered a small eating-house. The place was low-sealed and dirty, the air hot and steaming with the smell of food, but Chilcote passed through the door and moved to one of the tables with no expression of disgust and with far less furtive watchfulness than he used in his own house. By a curious mental twist he felt greater freedom, larger opportunities and drab surroundings such as these than in the broad issues and weighty responsibilities of his own life. Choosing a corner seat, he called for coffee, and there, protected by shadow and wrapped in cigarette smoke, he set about imagining himself some vagrant unit who had slipped his moorings and was blissfully adrift. The imagination was pleasant while it lasted, but with him nothing was permanent. Of late the greater part of his sufferings had been comprised in the irritable fickleness of all his aims the distaste for and impossibility of sustained effort in any direction. He had barely lighted a second cigarette when the old restlessness fell upon him. He stirred nervously in his seat, and the cigarette was scarcely burned out when he rose, paid his small bill, and left the shop. Outside on the pavement he halted, pulled out his watch, and saw that two hours stretched in front before any appointment claimed his attention. He wondered vaguely where he might go to, what he might do in those two hours. In the last few minutes a distaste for solitude had risen in his mind, giving the close street a loneliness that had escaped him before. As he stood wavering a cab passed slowly down the street. The sight of a well-dressed man roused the cabman. Flicking his whip he passed Chilcote close by, feigning to pull up. The cab suggested civilization. Chilcote's mind veered suddenly, and he raised his hand. The vehicle stopped, and he climbed in. "'Where, sir?' the cabman peered down through the roof-door. Chilcote raised his head. "'Oh, anywhere near Pall Mall,' he said. Then, as the horse started forward, he put up his hand and shook the trap-door. "'Wait,' he called. "'I've changed my mind. Drive to Catagon Gardens, number thirty-three. The distance to Catagon Gardens was covered quickly.' Chilcote had hardly realized that his destination was reached when the cab pulled up. Jumping out, he paid the fare and walked quickly to the hall door of number 33. "'Is Lady Astrup at home?' he asked sharply as the door swung back in answer to his knock. The servant drew back deferentially. "'Her ladyship has almost finished lunch, sir,' he said. For answer, Chilcote stepped through the doorway and walked halfway across the hall. "'All right,' he said, "'but don't disturb her on my account.' I'll wait in the white room till she has finished. And without taking further notice of the servant, he began to mount the stairs. In the room where he had chosen to wait, a pleasant wood fire brightened the dull January afternoon and softened the thick white curtains, the gilt furniture, and the Venetian vases filled with white roses. Moving straight forward, Chilcote paused by the grate and stretched his hands to the blaze. Then, with his usual instability, he turned and passed to a couch that stood a yard or two away. On the couch, tucked away between a novel and a crystal gazing ball, was a white Persian kitten fast asleep. Chilcote picked up the ball and held it between his eyes and the fire. Then he laughed superciliously, tossed it back into its place, and caught the kitten's tail. The little animal stirred, stretched itself, and began to purr. At the same moment the door of the room opened. Chilcote turned round. "'I particularly said you were not to be disturbed,' he began. "'Have I merited displeasure?' 
He spoke fast with the uneasy tone that so often underran his words. Lady Astrup took his hand with a confiding gesture and smiled. Never displeasure, she said lingeringly, and again she smiled. The smile might have struck a close observer as faintly artificial. But what man in Chilcote's frame of mind has time to be observant where women are concerned? The manner of the smile was very sweet and almost caressing, and that sufficed. "'What have you been doing?' she asked after a moment. "'I thought I was quite forgotten.' She moved across to the couch, picked up the kitten, and kissed it. "'Isn't this sweet?' she added. She looked very graceful as she turned, holding the little animal up. She was a woman of twenty-seven, but she looked a girl. The outline of her face was pure, the pale gold of her hair almost ethereal, and her tall slight figure still suggests the suppleness, the possibility of future development that belongs to youth. She wore a lace-colored gown that harmonized with the room and with the delicacy of her skin. Now sit down and rest, or walk about the room. I shan't mind which. She nestled into the couch and picked up the crystal ball. What is the toy for? Chilcote looked at her from the mantelpiece against which he was resting. He had never defined the precise attraction that Lillian Astrup held for him. Her shallowness soothed him, her inconsequent egotism helped him to forget himself. She never asked him how he was, she never expected impossibilities. She let him come and go and act as he pleased, never demanding reasons. Like the kitten, she was charming and graceful and easily amused. It was possible that, also like the kitten, she could scratch and be spiteful on occasion, but that did not weigh with him. He sometimes expressed a vague envy of the late Lord Astrup, but even had circumstances permitted, it is doubtful whether he would have chosen to be his successor. Lillian as a friend was delightful, but Lillian as a wife would have been a different consideration. "'What is the toy for?' he asked again. She looked up slowly. How cruel of you, Jack! It is my very latest hobby. It was part of her attraction that she was never without a craze. Each new one was as fleeting as the last, but to each she brought the same delightfully insincere enthusiasm, the same picturesque devotion. Each was a pose, but she posed so sweetly that nobody lost patience. You mustn't laugh, she protested, letting the kitten slip to the ground. I've had lessons at five guineas each from the most fascinating person, a professional, and I'm becoming quite an adept. Of course I haven't been much beyond the milky appearance yet, but the milky appearance is everything, you know, the rest will come. I am trying to persuade Blanche to let me have a pavilion at her party in March and gaze for all you dull political people. Again she smiled. Chilcote smiled as well. How is it done? he asked, momentarily amused. Oh, the doing is quite delicious. You sit at a table with the ball in front of you, then you take the subject's hands, spread them out on the table, and stroke them very softly while you gaze into the crystal. That gets up the sympathy, you know. She looked up innocently. Shall I show you? Chilcote moved a small table nearer to the couch and spread his hands upon it, palms downward. Like this, eh? he said. Then a ridiculous nervousness seized him, and he moved away. Some other day, he said quickly. You can show me some other day. I'm not very fit this afternoon. If Lillian felt any disappointment, she showed none. Poor old thing, she said softly. Try to sit here by me and we won't bother about anything. She made a glance for him to sit beside her, and as he dropped into it she took his hand and patted it sympathetically. The touch was soothing and he bore it patiently enough. After a moment she lifted the hand with a little exclamation of reproof. "'You degenerate person! You have ceased to manicure. What has become of my excellent training?' Chilcote laughed. "'Run to seed,' he said lightly. Then his expression and tone changed. "'When a man gets to my age,' he added, "'little social luxuries don't seem worth while. The social necessities are irksome enough. Personally I envy the beggar in the street, exempt from shaving, exempt from washing. Lillian raised her delicate eyebrows. The sentiment was beyond her perception. But manicuring, she said reproachfully, when you have such nice hands. It was your hands and your eyes, you know, that first appealed to me. She sighed gently with a touch of sentimental remembrance. 
and I thought it was so strong of you not to wear rings. It must be such a temptation. She looked down at her own fingers, glittering with jewels. But the momentary pleasure of her touch was gone. Chilcote drew away his hand and picked up the book that lay between them. Other men's shoes, he read. A novel, of course? She smiled. Of course. Such a fantastic story. Two men changing identities. Chilcote rose and walked back to the mantelpiece. Changing identities, he said with a touch of interest. Yes, one man is an artist, the other a millionaire. One wants to know what fame is like, the other wants to know how it feels to be really sinfully rich. So they exchange experiences for a month. She laughed. Chilcote laughed at well. But how? he asked. Oh, I told you the idea was absurd. Fancy two people so much alike that neither their friends nor their servants see any difference. Such a thing couldn't be, could it? Chilcote looked down at the fire. No, he said doubtfully. No, I suppose not. Of course not. There are likenesses, but not freak likenesses like that. Chilcote's head was bent as she spoke, but at the last words he lifted it. By Jove, I don't know about that, he said. Not so very long ago I saw two men such alike that I... I... He stopped. Lillian smiled. He colored quickly. You doubt me, he asked. My dear Jack. Her voice was delicately reproachful. Then you think that my... My imagination has been playing me tricks? My dear boy, nothing of the kind. Come back to your place and tell me the whole tale. She smiled again and patted the couch invitingly. But Chilcote's balance had been upset. For the first time he saw Lillian as one of the watchful, suspecting crowd before which he was constantly on guard. Acting on the sensation, he moved suddenly towards the door. I, I have an appointment at the house, he said quickly. I'll look in another day when when I'm better company. I know I'm a bear today. My nerves, you know. He came back to the couch and took her hand. Then he touched her cheek for an instant with his fingers. Goodbye, he said. Take care of yourself and the kitten, he added with forced gaiety as he crossed the room. That afternoon Chilcote's nervous condition reached its height. All day he had avoided the climax, but no evasion can be eternal and this he realized as he sat in his place on the opposition benches during the half-hour of wintry twilight that precedes the turning on of the lights. He realized it in that half-hour, but the application of the knowledge followed later, when the time came for him to question the government on some point relating to a proposed additional dry dock at Talkley, the naval base. Then, for the first time, he knew that the sufferings of the past months could have a visible as well as a hidden side could disorganize his daily routine as they had already demoralized his will and character. The thing came upon him with extraordinary lack of preparation. He sat through the twilight with intolerable calm, his nervousness showing only in the occasional lifting of his hand to his collar and the frequent changing of his position. But when the lights were turned on and he leaned back in his seat with closed eyes, he became conscious of a curious impression a disturbing idea that through his closed lids he could see the faces on the opposite side of the house, see the rows of eyes, sleepy, interested, or vigilant. Never before had the sensation presented itself, but once set up it ran through all his susceptibilities. By an absurd freak of fancy those varying eyes seemed to pierce through his lips, almost through his eyeballs. The cold perspiration that was his daily horror broke out on his forehead, and at the same moment Fraid, his leader, turned, leaned over the back of his seat, and touched his knee. Chilcote started and opened his eyes. I, I believe I was dozing, he said confusedly. Fraid smiled his dry, kindly smile. A fatal admission for a member of the opposition, he said. But I was looking for you earlier in the day, Chilcote. There is something behind this Persian affair. I believe it to be a mere first move on Russia's part. Your big trading people will find it worth watching. Chilcote shrugged his shoulders. Oh, I don't know, he said. I scarcely believe in it. Lakely put a match to the powder in the St. George's, but twill only be a noise and a puff of smoke. But Fraid did not smile. What is the feeling down at Wark? he asked. Has it awakened any interest? At Wark? Oh, I, I don't quite know. I have been a little out of touch with Wark in the last few weeks. 
a man has so many private affairs to look to. He was uneasy under his chief scrutiny. Fraid's lips parted as if to make reply, but with a certain dignified reticence he closed them again and turned away. Chilcote leaned back in his place and furtively passed his hand over his forehead. His mind was possessed by one consideration, the consideration of himself. He glanced down the crowded lighted house to the big glass doors, he glanced about him at his colleagues, indifferent or interested. Then, surreptitiously, his fingers strayed to his waistcoat pocket. Usually he carried his morphia tabloids with him, but today, by a lapse of memory, he had left them at home. He knew this, nevertheless he continued to search, while the need of the drug rushed through him with a sense of physical sickness. He lost hold on the business of the house. Unconsciously, he half rose from his seat. The man next to him looked up. Hold your ground, Chilcote, he said. Rayforth is drying up. With a wave of relief, Chilcote dropped back into his place. Whatever the confusion in his mind, it was evidently not obvious in his face. Rayforth resumed his seat. There was the usual slight stir and pause. Then Sallet, the member for Salchester, rose. With Sallet's first words, Chilcote's hand again sought his pocket, and again his eyes strayed towards the doors but Fraid's erect head and stiff back just in front of him held him quiet. With an effort he pulled out his notes and smoothed them nervously, but though his gaze was fixed on the pages, not a line of Blessington's clear writing reached his mind. He glanced at the face of the speaker, then at the faces on their treasury bench, then once more he leaned back in his seat. The man beside him saw the movement. Funking the dry dock? He whispered jestingly, No, Chilcote turned to him suddenly, but I feel beastly, have felt beastly for weeks. The other looked at him more closely. Anything wrong? he asked. It was a novel experience to be confided in by Chilcote. Oh, it's the grind, the infernal grind. As he said it, it seemed to him suddenly that his strength gave way. He forgot his companion, his position, everything except the urgent instinct that filled mind and body. Scarcely knowing what he did, he rose and leaned forward to whisper in Fraid's ear. Fraid was seen to turn, his thin face interested and concerned, then he was seen to nod once or twice in acquiescence, and a moment later Chilcote stepped quietly out of his place. One or two men spoke to him as he hurried from the house, but he shook them off almost uncivilly, and, making for the nearest exit, hailed a cab. The drive to Grosvenor Square was a misery. Time after time he changed from one corner of the cab to the other, his acute internal pains prolonged by every delay and increased by every motion. At last, weak in all his limbs, he stepped from the vehicle at his own door. Entering the house he instantly mounted the stairs and passed to his own rooms. Opening the bedroom door he peered in cautiously, then pushed the door wide. The light had been switched on, but the room was empty. With a nervous excitement scarcely to be kept in check, he entered, shut and locked the door, then moved to the wardrobe and, opening it, drew the tube of tabloids from the shelf. His hand shook violently as he carried the tube to the table. The strain of the day, the anxiety of the past hours with their final failure, had found sudden expression. Mixing a larger dose than any he had before allowed himself, he swallowed it hastily and, walking across the room, threw himself fully dressed upon the bed. End of chapters one through three. Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks dot com.